as a way to get started, um, see if you can trace the common thread here. Aslan, Anna, Baymax, and Bell, the Iron Giant, the Giving Tree, Bing Bong, Harry Potter, Gandalf, Katniss, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Boromir, Wreck-It Ralph, Wally, Black Widow, Tony Stark, Groot, Hopper, Bruce Willis in Armageddon, Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino, Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic, the Ant in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. What do all of these have in common? Any ideas? They all sacrifice. Yes. All right, John. You nailed it. Yeah, every single one of those are are characters who have given their life, right, uh, to save another. Jesus said, greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And as we near the end of Luke's gospel and as we draw near to Christmas time, we are reminded once more that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice for many. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. This was his mission from the get-go. You could say that the cross was in his crosshairs all the time. So let's read tonight's passage, Luke 22, verses 1 to 23. You can follow along here. We also have some Bibles over here on this table. They're our gift to you. Maybe some of you have a Bible app. That might be a good place to follow along as well. However you want to. Luke 22, this is God's word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover feast for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes that has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? This is God's word, not my own. So let me pray that we might understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us here together tonight to feed us with food and to feed us with your word. The cross of Jesus um, is a mystery in some way. So I pray you would give us insight to it, to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is ready to receive and to believe all that you want to impart to us tonight. And we ask these things for our good and for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's story, it takes place in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, Passover festival. Verse 7 in our passage tonight tells us that it is the day of the unleavened bread, the same night that the Passover lambs had to be sacrificed. This is a very important detail for the story tonight. The last meal that Jesus has with his disciples is the Passover meal. Before the day is done, which in the Hebrew sort of day goes from sundown to sundown, Jesus will have eaten this meal and he will have been arrested, tortured, and then crucified before the day is done. This is tremendously significant. If you want to understand what Jesus' death on a cross is all about, you really do need to know what Passover is and is all about. The Passover is like a key that unlocks a door, that unlocks a mystery. Because let's be frank, the cross of Christ does not seem to make much sense at first blush. To the casual observer, all that one sees is a good man being put to death for no good reason. To the casual observer, what we see is an innocent man on death row being given a lethal injection. A naked man writhing in agony on two wooden beams. That's what we see. What is there to celebrate? What is good about that? Why do Christians wear crosses around their necks and sing songs about the blood of Jesus and talk about this as if it were some good thing? It seems strange and it seems mysterious and it is Unless you have this key, this key that unlocks this door, right? This key called Passover. In the Old Testament, God saves his people on Passover. And in the New Testament, God saves the world right after a Passover meal. So this is clearly a big deal. This is very important. But what is it? What's it all about? Well, two things that I want to highlight for you is that the Passover and the cross of Jesus is about judgment, first of all. But Passover and the cross of Jesus is about grace, ultimately. It's about judgment, and it's about grace. Those are the two things that we're going to focus on tonight. Passover and the cross of Jesus, they're about judgment. The story, the very first story of the very first Passover, it's told in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 12. In this book of Exodus, we find the people of God in Egypt, And they're not in Egypt on vacation. They're not seeing the sights. They're not going to the pyramids of Giza and taking pictures in front of the Sphinx. They're not there on vacation. They are there as slaves. And God sees their affliction. He hears their cries for rescue. He knows their suffering. He doesn't know it in a detached way. 
God intervenes. He raises up a leader, a man named Moses, and he sends him to Pharaoh, and he gives him a set of instructions. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But Pharaoh refuses. So God wages war against Pharaoh, and he wages war against the Egyptian gods. He sends nine plagues, each one worse than the one that preceded it, each one a demonstration of his power and the impotence of Pharaoh and his gods to stop him. But Pharaoh's heart is hard, and it's hardened. And after nine plagues, Pharaoh still refuses to let Israel go. And this brings us then to a tenth and a final plague in what is now known as the Passover. For the tenth and the final plague, God does not work through a mediator like Moses. For the tenth and the final plague, God himself shows up to execute justice. Exodus 12, verse 12 reads, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I, this is God speaking, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on, on, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. One of my favorite movies um, of all time is the 1995 film Braveheart. Have any of you seen it? Mel Gibson um, not only directed this movie, but he played in its starring role the 13th century, 13th century warrior William Wallace. Braveheart is a long movie. It's three hours long. And Gibson is present in every scene. He's not visibly present in every scene of the movie, but he's always there, always there behind the scenes, right, as the movie's director. However, there are parts of the movie, many scenes in fact, when Gibson is not just there in the director's chair, but we see him front and center, and actually like on the silver screen. Now when we see him on the silver screen, we see him with a sword in his hand, we see him in the thick of the action, and we see him fighting for his people's freedom, and he's also fighting for revenge. He's waging war against those who have murdered his, his bride and who have been terrorizing his land. In Exodus 12, we see the Lord of the universe get off his director's chair, as it were, and step into the scene. Like William Wallace, he too has a sword in his hand. And he's entering into the fray. And he's fighting for his people's freedom. And he's going to execute justice against those who've murdered his bride and who've been terrorizing his land, his creation. But when God does this, this doesn't present just a problem to the people of Egypt. It's a problem for the Israelites as well. It's a problem for all of us when God does this, when he shows up in judgment. Because every single one of us has blood on our hands. Every single one of us has failed to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we haven't just missed the mark. We haven't just failed to do good things. We've also done harm. We've also done injury to God and to others and to this world. We have said and done awful things to people who are made in God's image. 
We sometimes catch ourselves treating people like objects and treating objects for our own selfish gain. Our selfish outlook, or if you like, our selfish end look, means that we ignore lots of evil and injustice, and some of it in our own backyard. We just walk right on by. We all have blood on our hands. And that is why when God shows up in judgment to deal uh, with those who have murdered his bride, who have terrorized his land, we are all in trouble. Everyone. Now, judgment is not a popular doctrine. Lots of people don't like to talk about it. Frankly, I would like to avoid the subject too. But we've got to talk about it. It's in the Bible. We're talking about the cross. We're talking about Passover. There's no way we can talk about those things without it. But judgment's not a popular doctrine. And people will often say, look, I believe in a God of love. I don't believe in a God who judges. But friends, that's a false dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. If you want a God of love, you're going to get a God who gets angry when he sees his loved ones treated poorly. If you spit in my wife Megan's face, or if you kicked my daughter to the ground, I would be furious with you. You would feel my wrath. And it's not because I'm not loving. It's because I am. I love my wife and my daughter too much to let you do that to them without me fighting you, right? I love them too much. Wrath, writes one theologian, is the best description we have for the way in which God's love encounters sin. It's the best way we can describe God's love encountering sin. God is a loving husband. He's a loving father. He's a loving God, which is why he gets angry and intervenes and executes justice against those who use and abuse his beloved. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert writes, Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. How should God react to a child being forced into prostitution? How should God feel about a country starving while warlords hoard the food supply? What kind of God wouldn't get angry at a financial scheme that robs thousands of people of their life savings and pockets the rich? You know, I used to think that the wrath of, uh, or I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God, writes Yale theologian Miroslav Volf. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? But then Volf goes on to answer those very questions that he raises. He says, and I quote, God is love, and God loves every person and every creature, and that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Think of Rwanda in the last decade of the 20th century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath 
but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? No. Wolf says, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You hear what he's saying? God is love. And because he is love, he executes justice against evil and against oppression, against sin. In fact, you want a God like that. A God who does not judge would not be worthy of your worship. He wouldn't be good. And you wouldn't want to worship a God like that. You want a God who sees the evil of this world and who hates it more than you do. A God who is not blind to it or deaf to it or indifferent to it, but who sees and who hears and who cares and who enters in, who's going to get off that director's chair and enter into the scene with a sword against sin and evil and injustice. You want a God like that. But here's the thing. You also want to be spared, don't you? You want a God who judges sin, but is also gracious toward the sinner. Unfortunately, that's the kind of God you get in the person of Jesus. That's the kind of God we're introduced to in the Bible. You want judgment, but you need grace. And that is what Passover and the cross of Jesus is all about. Point number two, the Passover, the cross of Jesus, is all about grace. In Exodus 12, God tells Moses that he's coming to execute judgment. But he also tells Moses that there is a way out. A way for them to withstand his judgment and not be crushed by it. And here are his instructions. God tells them, take a lamb for your household. The lamb must be perfect, without stain or blemish. It must be a male lamb, one years old. Kill it at twilight, between the sundowns. Take some of its blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of your house. And then take refuge in that house. Hide behind the blood of this lamb and then feast on it. Get it inside of you. So when I show up in judgment, I will see the blood of the lamb on the house where you live and I will pass over you. No plague and no destruction will befall you. And this is where Passover gets its name. Everyone who took refuge in the blood of the lamb without stain, without blemish, was passed over when God showed up in righteous judgment. Those covered in the blood, as it were, got to go free. That's the story of the first Passover. And Jews have been observing the Passover every year ever since. Indeed, some 2,000 years ago, that is what some Jews were doing in this particular guest room in Jerusalem. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took some unleavened bread into his hands But instead of saying, this is the bread of affliction our fathers had to eat as they came out of Egypt, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And then Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is poured out or this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. This is my body. This is my blood. What Jesus is saying to his disciples in that moment, communicating to us, is friends, brothers, sisters, I am your Passover lamb. I am the one that all those other little Paschal lambs looked forward to and anticipated. I, Jesus says, am the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. I am the innocent one, without stain or blemish, whose blood has got you covered. I am the one who's going to bear sin's punishment in your place so that God can pass over you and you can go free. This is what Jesus is communicating to his disciples on this night. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus gets picked up by the Jews and is handed over to Roman authorities. He's scourged. Even as Pontius Pilate declares, I see no fault in this man. Right? He's innocent. He's blameless. He's perfect. And yet, before twilight, they kill him. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus is experiencing hell, separation from the Father, which is what you and I deserve. He experiences hell, so we don't have to. He is forsaken so that we can be forgiven. And that is why, as he breathes his last, Jesus says, it is finished. Mission accomplished. Sometimes as we sing, there on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The full price of our sins was paid. Jesus doesn't just cover our sins 5% or 15% or 50%. He covers it 100%. Right? Debt paid in full. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for on the cross in the sacrifice that Jesus makes. That's why no more sacrifices are needed. Your debt is paid in full. So now, friends, do you understand why Christians wear crosses and sing bloody songs? Why it was a Good Friday after all? And this message that we preach, right? Good news. God is not blind, deaf, and dumb to our sin or to the world's evil. He sees it. He hears it. He knows it. He feels it. He cares. And he does something about it. He punishes it to the max. And believe me, trust me on this one, you want a God like that. A God who hates sin, but also who loves the sinner. The Bible says, and teaches us very plainly, without a hint of embarrassment, that Jesus is going to come again to execute judgment once and for all. Jesus is going to return like a bomb to blow up all evil and all injustice and set things to rights. But because the Lamb of God died for the sins of the world, You and I can actually stand on that day. 
Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done for you. Jesus is both the bomb and the bomb shelter. You get me? You tracking? He's your Passover lamb. And because he's your Passover lamb, you can take refuge in him. You can take cover under the blood of Jesus. Now, if this is what the death of Jesus on the cross means, if Passover is the key that unlocks the door to this mystery, and it is, what are we supposed to do once we pass on through to the other side? Once we use that key and unlock that door and we see the mystery that is the cross, what then? What are we supposed to do with this knowledge? Well, Passover was not an abstraction for the Israelites. They literally had to kill a lamb. And they literally had to put blood on their doorposts. And they literally had to hide underneath the blood, right? Inside for refuge. And then they literally had to ingest this lamb and to make this sacrifice their own. And we have to do the same. Not literally kill a blood and smear blood, but we have to make this our own. Jesus is the lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. He died for everybody. But unless you take this incredible gift and you take it to the bank, it's of no use to you. Look, if Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, was here tonight, and he's like, I'm feeling generous, and he wrote you a check for a billion dollars and he gave it to you, you know what that would make you? A person holding onto a piece of paper. (laughs) You are not a billionaire yet. If you want to be a billionaire, you're going to have to take that check and you're going to have to go to your bank and you need to cash it in, right? And God has given you a gift and the person of Jesus. It's worth far more than a billion dollars. But if it's going to actually be enriching to your life, you've got to cash it in. You've got to take it to the bank. You've got to make it yours. How do we do that? What does it mean for us to hide ourselves in Jesus or to make him our refuge, right? To take the sacrifice, to make it our own. Well, friends, the way that we do that is by faith, Right? The way that we hide ourselves in Jesus, what that means is it means that we quit looking to other things to save us. We quit trying to find our salvation in anything else. Being woke is not going to save you. Going on a missions trip is not going to save you. Being better than Adolf Hitler is not going to save you. Being a nice person who goes to church on Sunday is not going to save you. Only the Lamb of God who was slain on your behalf can save you. Only the death of Jesus on a cross can actually save you. When you stand before God and he asks, why should I pass over you? Why should you go free? Do not point to yourself and to your record of good and not good works, but instead point to Jesus and tell God on him every sin was laid. Jesus died and he died for me. That is what it means to hide yourself in Jesus, to turn to him and to nothing and no one else but him, right, for your salvation. Hide yourself in him.
There is tremendous power when we actually act this out. Morgan Dexter did this on Sunday when she was baptized. And in baptism, we pass through waters of judgment and we come out alive. Baptism symbolizes our being washed, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And what's more, it symbolizes the gift of God's Holy Spirit poured on us, the Holy Spirit who unites Jesus to Christ by faith. It's a powerful symbol. Baptism takes all of these sort of invisible realities and it makes it visible, makes it concrete, makes it tangible. There's real power in that. I loved Megan before our wedding day. But something happened when I put a ring on her finger and she put a ring on mine. Our love that we had professed for one another in some ways got signed and sealed with a wedding ring. It became concrete. It became tangible. And this, my wedding ring, now serves as a reminder of Megan's love for me and also my love for her. And in some ways like that, baptism functions as a sign and as a seal of God's promises to us and also right, our commitments to him. It's a sign and a seal of our being united to Jesus, a sign and a seal of our taking refuge in him. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus and would like to do that, talk to me. Um, if you've not yet been baptized, we can make that happen. But this is part of what it means to hide ourselves in him, right? To seek out baptism, right? Don't just hide in him. Right? Feast on him too. Right? Start by feasting on his word. Let the word of God get inside of you. It's living and it's active, the Bible says. Last week, Noah Pramsma uh, has been teaching me how to make kombucha. And uh, after brewing some tea with some sugar, you take this living and active thing called a scoby and you add it to it. And once this living and active thing is in the tea, it transforms the tea into kombucha, kind of like magic. And the Bible is this living and active thing that when we take inside of our lives, it transforms us too. Yes, I just likened the Bible to SCOBY, right? But it's this living and active thing that when it gets inside of us, it transforms us. We're not just tea anymore, we're kombucha, right? It does its work from the inside out. What we need to do is get inside of us. It's not the only thing we ought to feast on. Look at verses 17 and 20 with me one more time. It says here, Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you've ever gone to church, you might have heard these words spoken. And you might have seen people actually handing out bread and drinking wine or grape juice, doing exactly as Jesus has instructed us, right? To do this in remembrance of him. At some churches, this takes place every week. At others, maybe once a month. But Christians get to reenact this Passover meal. We get to reenact the Last Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper. 
And when we break bread together and we drink little cups of wine, Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, we are reminded in that moment that Jesus' death gives us life. As we feast at this table, as we feast on this meal, we are reminded that we have access into God's table because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We come to this meal empty-handed, but we leave full, full of grace, full of life. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are making Jesus' Passover gift, right? His death on a cross, we're making that gift our own. We are getting it inside of us. As surely as it is in my hands, and then in my mouth, and then down my throat, and into my gut. Right? Jesus' love is for me. Right? His death is for me. Don't just hide in him. Feast on him too. Make this gift your own. Personally appropriate. Cash it in. However you want to put it, do that. Take advantage of it. Make it your own. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not just the bomb. He's your bomb shelter. But if he's to be of any benefit to you, you've got to take this incredible gift and make it your own. Every car in America has a safety belt. Every car in America has a safety belt. But you've got to put it on. Here's this thing that can save your life, but it can only save your life if you wear it. Jesus has come to save yours. His blood has got you covered, but you have got to wear it. You've got to put it on. So take this gift for the world and make it your own. Hide yourself in him. Let's pray.